So a few years ago, I took this class on First and Second Peter, and you shouldn't surprise people, but I saw a friend, Carl Butler, come in. Did we take that class together, or was it a different class? Was it First and Second Peter? So I have a witness today. We took that class together, and here's the thing. You get reading assignments in classes, and it's just too much. Like, you can't read all this stuff. And for First and Second Peter, we got this. And it's not just books. They're commentaries. Have you ever read a commentary straight through? Did you read that commentary straight through? Commentaries are like really good books to read, but they're not designed to be read straight through, I don't think. Like this one. So this, this is the text, and these are footnotes. Starting there. So that's like commentary on the commentary that you're reading. And it was straight through. So I didn't read every word because I appreciated the commentary, but just sitting down, two commentaries straight through, that's a lot. And then I got to the, the final part of the assignment, and I've had to sign things before that said I've read this, like honor statements. But this one stood out to me in its detail. So I copied it off the syllabus, and here's what it said after reading these books. It kept you very honest. It said, for 100%, I read in detail. That is, reading thoroughly every portion of the reading assignment, uh, reading every page. For 75%, it said, reading a major portion of each page, not every word. And for 50%, it was called skimming. Uh, going through each page, noting the principal concepts so that you can give a brief summary of what the topic was about. I actually kind of took pride in my skimming ability. And that was only a 50% grade. So I think when I read that, I went back through and read enough that I could at least sign the 75% page. But then it said this. All right, to motivate you to honesty, it said these exact words. Turning in this report means that you agree to the following statement. On my honor... I promise to maintain the highest standard of honesty, integrity, and personal responsibility in this assignment. That sentence kept me honest. Because it just, you know, there's no way the professor knows if I skimmed or I read her, but it's on my honor. And then you're thinking, angels are watching. God sees this. On my honor, I promise to have the highest degree of honesty. We're going to think about honor today. And we understand it a little differently in America because we value independence and freedom where many cultures from ancient times until now have had honor and shame as kind of a basic value and a basic way they relate. So you, you are honored for doing socially acceptable things and you're shamed for doing socially unacceptable things. So honor and shame are heavy. And some of those cultures, we might look at them and say, wow, you rely too much on shame. And they might look at our culture and say, you are just <laughs> shameless. So there is a balance of how we deal with this honor thing. And I think that balance is tipped in the right direction when we consider who are we trying to please. Because if it's honor that tries to please my country, or if it tries to please, please my parents, or my family, or my clan, we can actually end up doing things that are very destructive in order to maintain honor. Like we could hurt ourselves, hurt our children, hurt our, our future just to look good in the eyes of somebody else. But I think what God calls us to in honor would be the type of honor that above all strives to look good in the eyes of God. 
So we're going to call that Rabbah Honor. Sounds like a good name for it, right? So that is Rabbah Honor. When I refer to Rabbah Honor, I'm thinking of the type of honor that makes you look good in the eyes of God. No one else is watching. The professor didn't see you do this in your study in, in private. But it's the type of honor where we strive to look good in the eyes of God. We're going to look at two stories that help us understand this. And what I hope is that this message and these stories could be a spiritual gut check for you. Are you living an honest life? Are you living a life where if we saw the whole thing opened, you would, you would be proud of the choices you're making? So let this be, be a, a moment for you to consider the honor you have in the eyes of God. Let's pray as we get to the stories. Would you join me? Lord, I pray that you would show your character in this call to a higher standard of honesty and integrity, that we would feel our need for your grace right now in this message, that we'd see hope that there's a God who loves us when we act very dishonoring. Thank you for these stories, that we see the humanness of of King David in these stories, and we see the grace of a good God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the two stories that we're going to pull together take us to a place called Rabbah. So last week we began a tour of the Holy Lands, and today for the tour, I'm going to take you to this place. It is the citadel of the Amon Citadel. This is an outline of the wall. It was like a 5,500-foot perimeter that you're looking at a sketch of there. And it's a high place in Amman, Jordan. It's 2,800 feet above sea level. So this is the group I went with, and we're looking down at Amman. You can see a Jordan flag there. And high places are great places for fortresses. So throughout history, this little hill has been occupied and, and made a fortress for many different governments. People come in, and they attack, and they overcome the city, and then they make this place very significant for their safety. So as you go through history, you find different pieces, and um, here's a picture of the wall. So fortified city. This would be a hard place to get into. We're going to come back to this wall in the story. Um, And just going back through their history, in very recent history, 1951, there was a museum put on top of this hill, but the history goes way further back than that. So one of the outstanding ruins is a palace. These are some ruins of a palace. And this palace is an 8th century uh, Muslim palace. So at the time, they were occupying the hill, the citadel of Amman. When you go back further than that, you see this behind me is the temple of uh, Hercules. And they actually had a statue of Hercules out there, and the only piece remaining are his hands. You can see the hand? That was Hercules' hand. And so that stands out from the Roman era. So when Rome was on the hill, they built a temple to Hercules. And here are some pictures I did not take, but beautiful ruins. Ruins can kind of be pretty, actually. They also have, from the Roman era, a Colosseum. That was, I'm looking down from the high place onto the Colosseum, and you can see from the size of the Colosseum that there was a good population there. Uh, they use uh, Colosseums to kind of measure how large the, the population might have been. And back further than that, you can't quite see, but the one pillar 
on this side says Amman, so a modern name of the city, and then it actually has a timeline going down through um, different empires who occupied this hill. And then before that, when the Greeks occupied it, they changed the name to Philadelphia, and you can see a timeline here. Before that, it was known as Rabath Amman, or in scripture, Rabah. So we're going back in history, all the way back from modern times, all the way back to when this hill in modern-day Amman, Jordan, was called Rabah. And Rabah occupies both of our stories. We're going to do two stories today. And here's the text right between the stories. It says, in the spring of the year, this is first, Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So this is the place where they were focusing their attack. War was happening, and it wasn't in Jerusalem. They were on pursuit of the Ammonites at the fortress of Rabbah. So going back from this text, this is chapter 11, verse 1. We're going to go backwards to a story about honor, and then forwards to a story about honor. And both of them have to do with David. The first one, David's honor shines. We see his honor displayed. David did a lot of honorable things. So doing things right in the eyes of God when it would have been so easy to, do, to not do it, like killing a giant. When he killed the giant, he wasn't just doing it for his pride. He said he defies the armies of God. He was, God's honor was at stake. So he went in defense of God's honor against this giant. We see David's honor as he is hated by Saul and chased around and hiding in caves. And instead of killing Saul, he cuts off a piece of his robe or he takes his spear and his water jug. It would have been so easy to take revenge on your enemy, but he really lived a life of honor. We see him displaying honor in his friendship with Jonathan. He makes a covenant uh, very strong covenant and says, you know, we will treat each other's descendants honorably. And we see him fulfilling that in Second Samuel uh, 9 when he looks and finds Mephibosheth. He's saying, is there anyone from, from David's family that I can show honor to? So David was a man of honor. And again, in Second Samuel chapter 10, so we're going to back up one chapter, he shows honor. And this time it's to the Ammonites. Ammonites are the the people of Ammon. Rabbah is their fortress. And the king Hanun had been loyal to David. So this is 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. I just summarized. And then David says, I'm going to show honor to his son because his father was good to me. So he sends some ambassadors to go show kindness. And this is what the advisors say. Verse 3. 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 3. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their Lord, Do not think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father. So David seeks to honor this enemy king. And they said, He's not honoring you. He's spying out the land. So therefore, do something dishonorably to him and send these people back in a dishonorable way. So David shines in honor in this story. And Hanun does not. So here's what Hanun does. He shaves off their beards and cuts their garments in the back, in the middle. 
he was trying to dishonor them. And we might not understand the honor and dishonor of that. The cutting off the garments is easy to understand the dishonor because no one wants their backside exposed, right? And to make that a little more graphic, it would be expected that none of the Israelites except the priest wore underwear. So that was very dishonoring. But the beards are a little foreign to us. Just to try to understand a little bit about why the beards were such an honor thing, no one does beards like Middle Easterns. Have you noticed that? Even to this day. So this is just a picture. I lived over there for a while, and I was so impressed with how groomed Middle Eastern men's beards are. Like, it's pretty impressive. And I went to some barbers, and I had an experience multiple times, but I had an experience of care in shaving my beard that I've never had anywhere else. Like, they take this very seriously. So this is my cousin, actually, who came to visit, getting his face shaved with a straight razor. So they have the straight razor, and they don't go slow, you know? They have the straight razor, and then this is me <laughs> after having my face shaved. And I don't know if you notice, I... I my face was very smooth. I don't know if it shows up there. It was very smooth. And the reason is, after the straight razor, they take this stuff, they take dent dental floss. Now, they called it Fetla. I don't really know the English name. I tried to look it up, and I can't, I can't type in a name to Google because I don't know how they spell it. But if you know it, you can tell me after the service. They take dental floss and, you know it? Okay. They put it around their fingers, and they put it in their mouth, and it makes a triangle that goes in and out when they pull because they're twisted around each other. And then they, they put it on your face and they move their hands and head back and forth and it pulls your hairs out. And they go around my whole face pulling these hairs out. And it was, I suffered. It was hard. <laughs> but they do this all the time and, they're, and it was like they went around the edges of my hair they take their grooming very seriously. And this is modern times, but even still in, in modern times, you see a lot of different beard arrangements that are significant to their culture. When you go to Jerusalem, you see different types of hair that mean different things. So, beards were important. In ancient times, beards were considered a sign of manhood, and they were considered a sign of freedom because... Slaves had their beards shaved. Free men grew them out. So to shave half their beard was to uh, take away their manhood and call them slaves. So he dishonored them. David displays honor. He dishonors them. David shines in this. Hunun doesn't. And then the results of it is that the honor is defended. When someone honors you and you dishonor them, they defend their honor. So in verse Eight. Now, verse 6 first it says, And when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired Syrians. And it tells how many they hired. And the point is, because they dishonored David, they had to go hire armies. And then verse 8, And the Ammonites came out and drew up battle lines in array at the entrance of the gate. Because of their dishonor, they had to draw battle lines. Now, we don't actually probably have a battle under our authority. Like, we're not commanders of armies. The point is, when I choose to act dishonorably, it leads to me 
drawing battle lines and having conflict in my relationships, right? If someone is dishonorable, eventually that'll result in conflict. So maybe one of the conflicts you're having right now, one of the troubles you're having in life is a end result of acting without honor. So now David is defending his honor. David is the one coming out looking good here. And it didn't work out well. They were defeated in battle, and people did not want to support them anymore. And then the stories transition. David, at Rabbah, with the Ammonites, acted honorably. Now, in verse 11, David is the one in the story who acts dishonorably. And I think there's a good lesson there. David had an excellent resume of acting right. But my past right actions do not exempt me from the consequence of my current wrong actions. Like, maybe I've been a great man the last 10 years, but today I don't feel like being a great man. Well, there's still going to be consequences for my dishonorable actions, even if I have a really good history. And David comes to this point where he has, after just consistently being an admirable person, a strong, honorable character, he has a huge fall. And his good behavior in the past didn't keep him from this. So the story in, in verse 11 shows us a compromised honor. And I don't know if this is the point of the text, but scholars are divided. In verse 1 it says, it was in the spring when kings go off to battle and David stayed at home. So one, one line of thought is that David actually was shrinking away from duty. So this is the time kings go to battle. David stayed at home. So in that way of thinking, David's moral collapse did not come when he summoned Bathsheba, but when he neglected his duty. I've read other scholars who say, no, this actually wasn't a, a neglected duty. In fact, his men, if you keep reading, I think it's in chapter 21, they urge him not to go to battle. You're the king, you stay home. And there have been other times when he stayed home from battle, so maybe it wasn't. At any rate, at some point, whether it was choosing not to go to battle or a different choice, he compromises that honor. There's a moment where we choose to compromise that honor, and when we choose to compromise our honor, then we open up the door for our honor to be tested. And that's what happened with David. Verse 2 through 5 tells a story of David looking down and seeing Bathsheba. Notice what it says in verse 2. I don't actually have text on screen. They're all, they're all right here, but we're all in the same chapter. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. It says, it happened late one afternoon. I just love how that starts. It happened. Temptation just happens. It just comes in the course of life. David was not, he did not wake up and say, I'm just going to go sin today. He did not, it, it just was the course of life. It happened late one afternoon. Then he went out to his deck and he looked down. And that's, that's how things enter into our life. The, the first look is not sin. It's returning to look again. David, David just had this temptation, this honor-compromising temptation come into his life, and that happens with all of us. Maybe not every day in a major way, but opportunities to compromise honor, you don't have to plan on them. They just happen. They come, and it's our choice what we do with them. Like, do we dwell in that place and go further, or do we say, that's a, that's a bad 
dead-end road. I'm going to get out of there. But it happened, and it says David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of his house, and he saw the roof of a woman bathing, and she was very beautiful. Um, So the roofs of houses, maybe we can envision this a little bit with a little bit more archaeology. So this is actually a replica of Jerusalem. So this picture, I took this picture in Jerusalem of a replica of Jerusalem. (laughs) So I think the replica was maybe covered about as much space as the floor here. It's a big replica. But what I have highlighted is a small portion. The Temple Mount is behind it. And that small portion is on the slope of Mount Moriah coming down. It's called the City of David. So when David occupied Jerusalem, it wasn't as large as the time of Christ. It grew to be larger, but the city of David was just that smaller area. And you notice that just to the side of that, there's a canyon, a valley, and it goes down. So it's on a hill. It's, you look out from the city, and you look downhill. And just recently, actually it was just 2005 when the archaeology, the, when they published these findings— If you look it up online, it's called the large stone structure. (laughs) Look up the large stone structure. But in the city of David, there's a place where uh, the the findings were published in 2005 that they believe this large stone structure is part of a palace in the city of David. So it's it's a higher point in the city. They think this was David's palace, which is pretty amazing. That's pretty recent times to be discovering these things. So I went into there and went to the edge of it, and I took a picture. It's a really blurry picture, but this is what it looks like from the edge of what is possibly David's palace. And what you're looking down on is a valley and a bunch of rooftops. So you can imagine, maybe that's somewhere like where David was. He's looking down. It wasn't like he was a a creep climbing up in a pillar to find someone's rooftop and look down. That's just the view he had. He looked over everyone's roof. And when he looked down, he happened to see a woman bathing, and she was very beautiful. And he summoned her, and she got pregnant. And then he had a problem. So he saw, he, he saw these roofs, and he compromised his honor. It was tested. And then we see a huge contrast between David's dishonor and Uriah's honor. So David has just done this this thing that is a sin against God, and a sin against Uriah, a sin against Bathsheba, and he summons Uriah to fix this problem. Uriah comes back, and he travels about 40 miles from Rabbah, where he's fighting the Ammonites, back to, to Jerusalem, and he, Actually, Uriah is one of the mighty men. So if you read in chapter 23, there's a list of 37 mighty men. Uriah is one of them. So David better have a really good reason to take one of his best men off the battlefield. But really his reason is to cover up his dishonor. And he tells Uriah, um, Scripture keeps it G-rated. It says, uh, go wash your feet, which was a euphemism for enjoy domestic pleasure. So go home and have a comfortable time. And Uriah, in contrast to David's dishonor, is incredibly honorable. He says, no, the ark of the Lord is out of camp. And the men are fighting, and he sleeps on his porch. So if we read, I I have verses written down, but I'm going to take too long if I go into them. If you read through the rest of of, uh, Samuel, you'll find that David had a 
he had established that when the ark of the Lord was out of camp and when the people were in battle, that the other men were to keep themselves ceremonially clean. When they're out of battle, they kept themselves ceremonially clean, which meant they couldn't engage in any sexual activity. So David knew that, and he broke that. Uriah knew that, and he said, actually, if I was to go home and do what you're suggesting, I will not be ceremonially clean, and that's what you've asked all the other soldiers to be. So he shows incredible honor. So if he was looking to have honor in the eyes of men, you know how easy it would be to justify something questionably dishonorable when the king is giving you permission and pressure to do it? Like, I know I shouldn't do this, but what, what consequences could there be? The guy in authority is telling me to do this. That was an incredible amount of rabah honor, the type of honor where Uriah is thinking about honor in the eyes of man or in the eyes of God, because in the eyes of the most important man in his culture, he had complete permission to do this thing. Uriah is thinking about honor in the eyes of God. So he does not do that. And then David comes up with another plan, and he gets Uriah drunk. This is maybe a side note, but incredibly ironic. So David learned this from somewhere, that you can get people to make bad decisions when they're drunk. Can you think of another story like that? So there's another story. If you go back to Lot and his daughters, they get their, their father drunk, and they uh, get pregnant by their father. Do you know what one of the son's names was? Ben-Ami. So Lot's, I think, the youngest daughter, I think it's the youngest daughter, has a son by her father who she got drunk and names him Ben-Ami. And scripture says, who is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Isn't that interesting? The, the root of the history of this enemy nation that Uriah is fighting against comes from a decision of getting someone drunk to make, make them make a bad decision. So David is, is stealing a tactic from the people he's fighting against to cover up his shame, and he gets him drunk, and that still doesn't work. And at that time, David knows he has to make a decision. Someone's got to die. It's either him or Uriah. And he concocts his plan, and Uriah shows incredible honor once again. He carries a letter that instructs in, their instructions for his own death. And he carries it, and he has the honor not to peek at it. And he carries it all the way back and hands it to the commander and honorably obeys the king to, to deliver his own death plan. A lot of honor in that. Then Uriah, they march up to a wall. You know what wall they march up to? They're attacking Rabah. So the, the wall we looked at, the, the picture, they march up to that wall, and I've stood on that wall and looked down and thought about this story. And, and when he's killed, they say, hey, don't you know that, like, this is a really bad army move. People can drop things off walls and hurt them. And the instruction comes from David, don't be displeased with what you've done. You're okay. And then they say, if, if anyone's displeased, just let, let, let the king know. Uriah, your servant, has been killed. So Uriah is killed, acting honorably the whole time, and David gets away with the whole deal. It, almost, it seems like a really bad story, but in the end, it's like it all works out. 
David gets to take Bathsheba as his wife. They have a child. No one needs to know. But the thing about honor is with God, who sees everything, we don't actually cover up dishonor. We just bury honor. Like when we try to cover it up, all we're doing is burying our own honor because God saw the whole thing. So Nathan the prophet comes and he tells this story and he says, you know, there's a man with these sheep and David's heart's touched and he says, this man needs to die. And Nathan says, you are that man. And David feels conviction. And this is, on the, this is a piece on the road to our honor being restored. Feeling conviction, having the truth, con- being confronted with truth, and then he says, you are that man, and he explains why. This is chapter 12. He says, you know, you, having all these things, took from Uriah, and what was read to us in the scripture reading is, if that were not enough, all these things I gave you, if that were not enough, I would have given you more. Think about that. So God says to David, whom he has given kingdoms and riches, he says, if that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. I don't have as much as David had, but there's a God who takes care of me, and his attitude is, if you don't have enough, Ryan, I can give you more. And yet, I could go out and act dishonorably because I don't trust that. I don't actually trust that God's going to provide for my needs, so I'm going to go out and find things that I see from my roof and say, I want this thing. I need this thing. And God says, if you needed something, if you needed something to satisfy you or, or to make life more abundant for you, the right place to look would have been to your Father in heaven who gives abundant life. I would have given you what you needed, but you and chose instead to act dishonorably and get it your own way. So David is confronted. He repents. We have Psalm 51 as our story of him. His prayer, uh, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit in me. And then God actually brings him to Rabbah, the very place where once he honored the father of Hanun, then he completely dishonored God with Uriah, and Uriah showed honor in his place. Now David goes to Rabbah. We're going to skip over to chapter 12, verse 26. This time David is there. It says, Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city, and Joab sent messengers to David. I fought against Rabbah, moreover, I have taken the city. Oh, they got this place. Then there's plunder, and notice how David is honored in the plunder. It says, So David gathered all the people. This is verse 29. And went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. Now he's like standing in the place. And he says, and he took the crown off their king's head. And it was a weight of a talent of gold. And in it a precious stone. And it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. So here David is actually honored by the people in Rabbah with a crown of gold on his head, exalted as the victor in the city. And God is allowing him, after this big fall of honor, to be lifted up and exalted. And David goes down in history. From that moment, he has this major collapse in in honor. But he 
turns to God, he repents, and God allows David to be exalted in the eyes of man the rest of his life. So here is Rabbah honor. It is not the honor that never falls. David had a pretty hard, hard fall that was made public. Rabbah honor is not perfection, and like, I've maintained this my whole life. Rabbah honor is the kind of honor that will be broken before God. Like, when it, when it fails, it will be broken before God, and you'll come before God and say, I don't care how I look in front of them. I don't care what my reputation is like. I want to be right before you, because you've seen it all. And David, even though, I mean, we could criticize him. He, he, was, he messed up. He had the type of Rabbah honor where he repented, and God, an incredibly gracious God, chose to restore him in a position honorable to men. So when God looks into your heart, he's not going to pr- find perfection, but will he find a broken heart that says, Lord, whatever it takes to please you, that's what I want. At the ending of the story of David and Bathsheba, if you go back to ver- chapter 11, the last phrase of the story of David and Bathsheba says, and the whole thing displeased God. David got away with it, but it displeased God. The God who sees in to everything wasn't happy. It's Rabbah honor. So I want to think about uh, this through a final story. Think about, does your heart want God to look into it? Are you comfortable today letting God, you know he sees everything. Are you comfortable today letting him take a, a good look in your heart and do whatever work he needs to do. I was, I went for a hike one time and uh, got a chance to go to Zion National Park when it was in a super bloom. It was 2018, summer of 2018. It rained a bunch and the flowers were out everywhere. It was amazing and we camped among the flowers in the desert. So I went on this hike. My family was feeling sick and I decided I would go solo hiking in Zion National Park and, and I went kind of for a run in the desert And the trail I went to was Las Palmas. It's like an oasis of palm trees. And the trail was really hard to follow. I got lost several times. And so when I saw a story about a hiker who got lost on that same trail, I was interested. And this happened actually the summer, it was the same summer, no, the summer before I went out. This is another solo hiker's experience on the same exact trail. And her name is Claire Nelson. She was house-sitting for someone near Zion National Park. Um, no, Joshua Tree. This is Joshua Tree. Sorry, Joshua Tree. She was at Joshua Tree, house-sitting. She wanted to go for a hike, so she goes out. She had plenty of water, and she lost the trail. She didn't really know she lost the trail, but she lost the trail, and she climbed up on a rock, and um, that's not a black eye. That's actually a play button on the video. She climbed up on this rock and got this incredible view and then fell off. And she fell about 25 feet and landed on a rock and broke her pelvis. And so all these realities are setting in when she realizes, I can't move. And she thinks she might be paralyzed, and then she knows something's broken. And she thinks, well, this is the time to call for help. So she gets her cell phone out and goes to call 911, but there's no reception. So that's, that's a hard, hard reality. No reception on my phone. 
And then she thinks about her situation a little bit more and says, uh, well, I didn't tell anyone where I was going. No one's going to be looking for me. And then she realizes, I'm not on the trail. And she doesn't have a lot of hope that anyone's going to become looking for her off trail in the desert. No one's expecting her back, but she can't move. So she sets, she takes her gear and sets up like this little sunshade. And she had a, a digital camera. So she actually started videoing herself talking because it was comforting to talk to somebody. And, and in the videos, she's saying, I'm so scared. I think I might die. I, I'm out here all alone. Don't know what to do. Well, she makes it through day one, incredible pain, and she can't move. Makes it through day two and into day three. And um, she's very thirsty by now. She has some water, but she's very thirsty. And she's getting these hallucinations. She's hearing voices and then realizing no one's there. And eventually, you know, after all these process, thought processes of realizing this could be, you know, her final mistake, <laughs> um, she thinks she hears a helicopter. She's like, no, I'm just hearing things again. And then she, she hears the helicopter, and it get, comes closer, and the helicopter flies over and misses her, and she thinks, that was my chance. She's yelling and waving, and they go away, and they don't see her. And then a while later, they come back, and there's a loudspeaker on the helicopter, and it says, they're, they're calling her name from a distance, and she's waving and screaming, and the loudspeaker from the helicopter says, we see you, and we're coming back. Can you imagine the comfort of those words? Like, we see you. So there's a God. He sees everything. And he's saying, you're in trouble. <laughs> you feel all alone. I see you. And that hits me with so much comfort. You know, that can hit you completely opposite. If Claire was running from the law, and she was hiding because she knew she was going to be brought back to prison, and the police helicopter comes and says, I see you, the response is very different, right? Like, I don't want to be seen. Same, same situation. You're stranded in the desert, and you're seen. And that's, you know, God sees, whether you want it or not. He sees. If you're in Claire's position, you have nothing to be ashamed of. You've just, you're lost. You want to be found. I'm here. Come get me. Broken and hurt as I am, come get me. If you're in another situ situation where you're hiding your shame, you're burying things, you don't want to be found, you're like, I've just been exposed. And where's your heart with God? Is it, is it in her situation of, you see me, rescue me, come right now and get me? Or is it in the place of saying, oh, you see me and I wish you did not, because that really hurts. Uh, it says in Ephesians chapter 3, it says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. But all who come into the light are exposed by the light. And God, he doesn't have a helicopter, but he's, he's here and he's calling out, Hey, I see you. And that can be incredibly comforting. Or it can be incredibly, shamefully exposing. W what will you do with that, that moment of God looking deep into your heart right now? Because we could allow him to look deep. Will you let him see your brokenness and have that rabah honor? Or will you just know that he's looking and think, I'll just ignore the fact that he sees it all so that I can be comfortable hiding my shame. So I invite you to, to put yourself in that situation. Take yourself to the wall of Rabah. Think about Uriah and David. Do a spiritual gut check of your own integrity and your honesty before God and men. 
Do you want more than everything else to look good and pleasing in the eyes of God? And we're going to close with a song, give you a chance to pray through that and think through that, and then a bit of addiction. Live with this kind of honor, pleasing in the sight of God, Rabah honor.